Live from the ACU of Texas studio, we are partnering with you in health. We're going to be highlighting some of Bay Area's top doctors, latest technology, and medical services. This is Bay Area Regional Medical Hour. Hi, everybody. Welcome. My name is Abby Lee, your host of Bay Area Regional Medical Hour on another fabulous Tuesday at 4. I'm so excited to be here. We've got two awesome guests. And if you're watching on Facebook, you should see what Amy has out. It looks like we're going to be doing a procedure. <laughs> Leon's a little freaked out, too. Promise we're not going to be doing any procedures in here today, okay? <laughs> but I can't wait to talk to you about all of that. That looks so much fun. So today we have Dr. Sarah Siddiqui. She's an internal medicine physician um, uh, at Texas Gulf Coast. Her office is literally down the street from the studio. So mm -hmm. I'm super excited to talk to you today. We're going to talk, be talking about pre-diabetes, annual physicals. Right. If you have questions along the way, you guys mm -hmm. shout them out on Facebook. If you're watching on Facebook and you can't watch the whole time, you can listen. You can go to the TuneIn app. You can tell Google or Alexa to play Vinyl Draft Radio or go to VinylDraftRadio.com and listen live as well. And then we're going to talk to Amy Easton. She is a director of our cardiac cath lab. And I have to tell you, so I don't try to tell this to a lot of people, Amy, but the cath lab is one of my favorite parts of the hospital. It is so cool. It's like people, Star Trek. We have it, lots of toys. Yeah, people are listening to Journey, and it's like you're doing some for real work on someone's heart but everybody's just cool as a cucumber yep. and it's not anything like what you would see on tv so i can't <laughs> wait to talk to you about that and all of this that's going on right here <laughs> <laughs> so uh this is bay area regional medical hour and it's with bay area regional medical center we're the new hospital on highway three the big blue glass building you can't miss us if you're interested in learning more about the hospital you can go to barmc.us uh, we also wanted to give a big thank you to the Webster Fire Department. They donated a bunch of teddy bears for us oh, to give yeah. to pediatric That's patients wow. in the That's ER so and siblings in our women's center. So that, that is very, very sweet. Cool. So thank you, Webster Fire Department. Love to give you a quick shout out to, uh, to thank you for that. All right, so we're going to dive right in, Dr. Siddiqui. Are you Sounds on? Sounds good. Okay. All right. So let's talk about prediabetes. What is that? So for most of us, most individuals, we know what type 2 diabetes is. It's when folks have higher levels of sugar in their blood. So what prediabetes means is that your sugar levels are abnormal, but they're not at the level of diabetes yet. So some other terms that are used are um, having impaired fasting sugar levels or impaired glucose tolerance. So you may hear your doctor talking about that. So there's different terminology, but it's basically having borderline sugar levels, not quite a type type 2 diabetes. Okay, so you're on the verge of it. You may or may not get it. Exactly, Ooh, okay. exactly. So what causes prediabetes? So prediabetes, the pathophysiology is very similar to um, type 2 diabetes because basically it's the precursor of type 2 diabetes. And so what ends up happening is um, in our body, we usually have um, insulin that's being produced by our pancreas and the insulin hormone is what's going to help um, 
provide glucose to our cells. So for instance, normally after a meal, our pancreas gets signaled and it will secrete out um, insulin into the bloodstream. And what ends up happening is the insulin will attach onto a cell to the cell receptors and it'll allow glucose or the sugar molecules to come into cells. So that's how it's providing that energy source. Um, so normally we're able to get back to our normal sugar levels, but what happens over time if we have really poor eating habits, have really you know, doing the standard American diet with processed foods, refined grains, and lots not of get, sugar, <laughs> lots of sugar, um, and not getting enough physical activity. Over time, we can develop something called insulin resistance, mm -hmm. where that hormone insulin is not working as well, and because of that, the sugar levels are not going inside our cells as much, and we end up accumulating that sugar in our blood, and so that's how kind of part of the pathophysiology of prediabetes, and eventually, if we continue with that, it'll turn into type 2 diabetes. Okay, so if you have, let's just go over the difference between type 1 and type 2 real quick, just in case someone's Absolutely. watching or listening, they don't know. So type 1 diabetes, it's more of, uh, can happen with in an autoimmune condition where um, the, the beta cells in the pancreas, they're uh, to the point where they're not producing insulin anymore. They're not producing that hormone. And usually the onset is at a younger age. Mm -hmm. um, so at one time it was even called juvenile diabetes. And so the only way to manage for that is <coughs> is to take insulin versus type two diabetes. It's, um, grad, it's, it's a more gradual onset. As we talked about, there's insulin resistance that goes along with it. So for that, um, the, the interesting thing is before that used to be called adult onset diabetes, but now because of increased rates of obesity, even among our children, it's becoming more common to diagnose type 2 diabetes even amongst younger, um, amongst children what's and the adolescents. Youngest, what's the youngest child that you've seen diagnosed with type 2 diabetes? So unfortunate. I know, ch I know you don't do children. I don't. So what have you heard? What have I heard? <clears throat> Maybe not. I mean, I've heard less than 10 years old, mm. so it's very much possible and it's very unfortunate, but. Yeah. Have you seen any patients um, have diabetes and then reverse it? It's it's possible. It's awesome. it's possible to slow down the progression, absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about, pre, we're, today we're really focusing on prediabetes. That's though. correct. So what's the signs and symptoms of prediabetes? So prediabetes, there's no clear signs and symptoms. So what ends up happening is basically it would be, a, it requires a blood test for your doctor to take to figure out if someone has prediabetes. And um, one of the reasons we wanna increase awareness on prediabetes is because if we take action now to reverse that, mm -hmm. then it it basically prevents going into diabetes, which has such severe complications. So if we can diagnose someone with borderline prediabetes, we can take action then, rather than waiting for it, someone to get a diagnosis of type two diabetes. Yeah. What are the signs and symptoms if it has progressed to type two? So you've been pre-diabetic and you didn't know for such a long time and all of a sudden, all right, your, your body is in full-blown type two diabetes. Is there signs and symptoms that someone would know like, oh my gosh, that something's going on? Yes, there is. So sometimes I have patients coming in where they're complaining of fatigue, increased um, urinary frequency or um, having increased thirst, um, feeling dehydrated despite having all this water and so forth. 
forth. And so those are some of the nonspecific signs. Sometimes we have folks coming in with blurry vision, numbness and tingling in their feet. Um, sometimes it gets to the point where sugar levels are so high. I mean, we're talking about in you know 600s to thousands where they're, they're acidotic and ketotic, um, going into a, a severe complication where they have to go to the ER and get hospitalized, be in ICU care basically, because they're having diabetic ketoacidosis. Wow, that's kind of scary. Mm -hmm. So can someone go have type 2 diabetes for that long and then just not know it and not? Yes, it's very much possible. Oh, mm -hmm. that is so scary. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, we what are the risk factors of having prediabetes? So some of the risk factors are, are being overweight. Um, so a BMI of, of 25 or above. Um, also having a family history, especially first degree relatives like parents and siblings. Mm -hmm. um, there are also, if, if you're having a sedentary lifestyle, so not getting any phys less than three times a week of physical activity. Um, the other thing would be certain conditions like gestational diabetes, so that's having diabetes during pregnancy, or um, another condition is polycystic ovarian syndrome that can also um, have a predisposition for like insulin resistance. So, and people will know if they have polycystic something what i can't remember oh, i can't remember so what that's, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, that's pcos polycystic ovarian syndrome okay. so um it's for women who are having um not having irregular periods and um basically they would have to see their their gyna or their OBGYN doctor to get that diagnosis so okay okay so let's talk about so you i guess you would want people to get a glucose test Exactly. Frequently to well, check not, to see not, if they not necessarily frequently, um, but you know, we're later on we're going to be talking about annual physicals. But that's one of the tests that we do are fasting sugar levels. So it's important to get that checked. Um, also, um, if there is any family history of diabetes, then the doctor may order a hemoglobin A1C. So uh, hemoglobin A1C is basically a blood test in which it gives a three-month average of sugar levels. And that's usually what's used to, that can help with diagnosis, and it's also used to monitor for someone who already has diabetes. It's checked like every three to six months. When so. I first heard about the a HbA1c I didn't know what it was and then someone told me that it, it can go back and look at your your history basically give you and I was like that That's is the coolest cool. thing yeah. ever mm -hmm. so what are the ranges that you look for so for for fasting blood glucose levels um, for pre-diabetes or borderline diabetes we're looking at so if it's between 100 to 125 and you've had two readings of that consistently as fasting sugar levels mm -hmm. then um, then likely it's it's pre-diabetes um, and then for type 2 but type 2 diabetes it's 126 and above getting at least two readings and fasting range and then if there's a random sugar level that's 200 in a blood test then that gives a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes wow only one mm -hmm. wow that's crazy yeah so if you have prediabetes does it mean that you'll eventually get di type 2 diabetes if someone continues on where their current lifestyle behaviors, it's very much possible that it's going to likely progress into type 2 diabetes. <coughs> However, if we take charge and try to make changes, it's possible to reverse and, and slow down the progression. And can you prevent diabetes or prediabetes? I think it is preventable in terms of if you're able to take on lifestyle behaviors that are healthy, mm -hmm. in which you're watching your nutrition and getting um, sufficient physical activity throughout the week, it's possible. 
Everything so. goes back to that. And I know that you're a big proponent on prevention. So yes, we <laughs> will talk about prevention in just a minute because we have to go to break. Our first segment is already over, which is crazy. So if you're watching on Facebook or you're listening, y'all, y'all hold on for just a few minutes and we'll be back to talk to Dr. Sara Siddiqui about prediabetes and the importance of annual physicals. We'll be right back. Today we have Dr. Sara Siddiqui, who is an internal medicine physician. We were talking about prediabetes. We're going to talk a little bit more about that and the importance of annual physicals. And then we're going to talk to Amy Easton. She's our director of our cardiac cath lab. And if you're watching on Facebook, you can see all of the fun things that we have here. Can't wait to talk to you about that. That'll be so much fun. Um, And I wanted to give a shout out to Janice Kite, who's listening to Dallas, Texas. I'm glad you're, you're repping Dallas, Janice. That's awesome. And everybody else that's watching y'all um, add some questions if you have any we'll give you a shout out too so write some comments below we'll give you a little shout out so all right dr siddiqui let's get back to diabetes what is the management of prediabetes so for prediabetes the things that really matter is going to we've been reiterating this lifestyle behaviors so for nutrition um, really trying to be on a plant-based whole food diet where it's high in fiber so you want to be eating a lot more vegetables and um, one of the things that I really like to let my patients know a technique is to overcrowd their plate so even if they're going to be eating more processed food like if they're eating processed foods try to make it a smaller portion of their plate so Mm -hmm. their grains and meats try to make it um, each a quarter of the plate and then the rest of the plate should be some sort of salad or steamed vegetables so um, trying to do that in terms of overcrowding so that helps. Um, the other thing would be um, physical activity, getting at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week will help to bring it down. Um, so and, by moderate, I have to. we have to talk about this absolutely. because this comes up every week. We, every week what we end it, up talking about prevention and right, all of this absolutely. and everybody's like diet I think we and need to define exercise. Absolutely. Yeah. So the difference between moderate and vigorous intensity exercise, moderate intensity is when someone is speed walking and they're not necessarily huffing and puffing they can still they can complete their sentences Mm -hmm. so versus someone who's going to be running that's vigorous intensity because they're huffing and puffing and not able to complete their sentences so um, what they what the recommendation at minimum is to get 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise Um, the equivalent to that would be 75 minutes of vigorous intensity so depending on which one you you prefer doing for for folks who haven't been doing any physical activity at all I do recommend for them to gradually get to that point and not just start with and go 30 right minutes into like hit cardio <laughs> exactly. and be like yeah I'm a and beast high, I can do trying this to do high impact <laughs> interval yeah absolutely <laughs> that's gonna take some time to get to that point so exactly. and you want to talk to your doctor about if you're someone who's deconditioned like um, you know someone who might have obesity and and possibly like you want to make sure that that you're okay in terms of getting into getting physically active so since we're talking about exercise what's your stance on weightlifting i am a huge proponent of i I think it should be done at least twice a week and that is a recommendation as well and in the context of pre-diabetes it's a great way of adding that on because our muscles they use glucose as their energy source and so they're going to chomp up all those glucose love um sugar in your blood that's awesome yeah okay so how do i know if i have pre-diabetes so, um, like we mentioned before, we would do a blood test. Now, for those of us who are um, who are listening to this and um, 
you know, before even seeing the doctor, something that you can do is go online and go to a website that's called doihaveprediabetes.org. So this is something established by CDC and by American Medical Association and by Ad Council. And so it's a way of them um, increasing awareness about prediabetes. And what you do is that there's seven simple questions on there and um, asking about your risk factors. And then at the end, they'll calculate a score for you. And if it's, if you meet a certain threshold, then they'll recommend for you to talk to your doctor and get the blood test done. Hmm. Awesome. Okay. So if it does progress to type two diabetes, what kind of complications are we, are we looking at if that happens? So there, there are several complications. I mean, it's a really systemic disease. It's affects all over the body. So one of the bait, one of the major things is that when someone gets diagnosed with type two diabetes, mm-hmm. their risk factor for having um, a heart attack or having heart disease, it's equivalent to someone who already has heart disease. And so it's it's a very serious matter for someone to get um, diabetes. And um, then you might be seeing Amy. Exactly. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> we see a lot of people with diabetes that already have, you know, didn't know they had heart disease as well. Wow, interesting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One of the problems with diabetes is it puts us in, in this inflammatory state. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, it, it, it and increases the risk of having things like stroke and heart attack, so forth. Some other complications. So diabetes is actually the leading cause of getting like lower limb amputations. And it's also the leading cause of new cases of blindness. And I did not know that until a couple of years ago that it could lead to your having being having to get of an amputation. I can't say that right this second. <laughs> an amputation or going blind if it goes untreated for so long, mm-hmm. and that's just like all right. just not treating it. Absolutely. And then um, the other some other complications. It can also lead to kidney fla- failure, requiring dialysis. So there's very severe complications that can possibly happen um, Hmm. for someone who has like uncontrolled diabetes that's not being managed well so awesome so we have janice commenting she's saying yes so i'm watching and listening to you guys on facebook i just had my physical yesterday at my doctor's office and found my a1c is 6.4 is that good or bad in between so that's at at the pre-diabetes level. So that's something we didn't talk about where the range is for hemoglobin A1C. Oh, okay. There so, you go. Thanks, Janice. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So hemoglobin A1C, when we're ranging from 5.7 to 6.4, that's the range for pre-diabetes. And uh-huh. then 6.5 is when someone gets the formal diagnosis of diabetes. Anything 6.5 and above is diabetes. And uh-huh. then for someone who has like an A1C higher than 7, I mean... I've seen A1Cs that that are tremendously high, like up to 16 or 17. I mean, those are super, super high. Wow. I'm glad that you're tuning in too, Janice. All right. So talk to me about the importance of annual physicals. So an annual physical is, I'd encourage everyone to basically get the physical done every year um, for for someone who mainly sees adults. So I see patients who are going to be 18 and above. Mm -hmm. So I encourage all of them every year to to get it done. And the reason is because this is the appointment where we can really discuss about prevention and wellness, discuss about lifestyle behaviors. You know, this whole time we've been talking about physical activity and nutrition. So so I'll focus on that. Um, Also, if anyone has a history of smoking, we'll talk about smoking cessation during that appointment. Um, The other thing is that appointment is really tailored for the patient. So based on their risk factors, what their age is, we'll talk about some screening tests that they may, um, that are recommended for them. Also um, talk about the benefits and risks of the certain options that are available for screening. 
um, will also get up to date on their immunizations. So there are different things that can get addressed during this appointment that may not necessarily otherwise get addressed if we um, are managing a patient's chronic medical conditions. Um, sometimes they get, you know, they get swept under the rug, and so that's why it's important to have this appointment done. Do you talk about uh, their family history too, and some things to look out for? Absolutely. Also during those? Yeah. So, so for family history, um, so we have screening tests that are available, like for colon cancer screening, for breast cancer screening, cervical cancer screening. So specifically for colon cancer screening, if you have someone who's a first degree first degree relative who has colon cancer, then it's important to bring that up with your doctor so you can figure out how to do the colon cancer screening for you. So yeah, yeah. it's a big yeah. deal to do that. Okay, yeah. so let's talk about you for a minute. Why did yeah. you want to become a doctor? So um, I wanted to become a doctor. This have several reasons, but the, <laughs> the, the major ones are, um, so I growing up, I actually wanted to be all sorts of different things, like a paleontologist or marine biologist, all these out like outrageous <laughs> have things. Have you met Dr. Washington? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, but eventually, once I got into college, um, you know, I'm just really fascinated by medicine, and mm-hmm. so I knew that was where I really wanted to um, take my education towards. The other thing is, I've always have had this drive to um, to really make a positive contribution in humanity, and it, you know, this is a profession where we're able to potentially improve people's lives, and so this was the best path for me at this point. Why so. did you choose internal medicine? So for internal medicine, um, I knew in, in med school I wanted to do something in primary care, mm-hmm. and internal medicine for me provided that outlet. And um, I really enjoy seeing my patients on a long-term basis, following up with them, and I feel like I'm growing with them in that mm-hmm. process. And so I'm really, um, that's how I decided on internal medicine, really. so Awesome. Well, tell us a little bit about your background in education. So um, I mainly got most of my education here in Texas. So went to UT Austin for awesome. undergrad, um, and then from there, I oh, forgot to do this hookem. <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, coincidentally, I mean, this is it's just an. Inc- uh, I don't know. I laugh every time I think about this, but I went to Texas A&M afterwards. Uh, yes, there's a couple people that do that. I think that's funny. Yeah, you're a so, Longhorn and an Aggie. Okay, I guess, I guess I'm an Aggie too. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so I went uh, for medical school there, and then afterwards um, UTMB for my combined residency. So. so, what made you choose to stay in this area and and go on with Texas Gulf Coast? So for me, it was really my family. I have my whole family here. And um, that was a major reason why I stayed in the area. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the other thing in terms of Texas Gulf Coast, I just love the people. Um, it's been very supportive, amazing. And I think the other thing is our, our vision aligns as well. I'm, as you can probably tell from from uh, you know that I'm a huge advocate for prevention, wellness, and that's one of the things that that they also put an emphasis on. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because there are some other healthcare systems that are not necessarily focusing on mm-hmm. that. And so I think it's important um, for me to be part of a practice that has, holds that kind of value. Awesome. Well, we, we're going to have to go to break in just a minute, but if someone wants to make an appointment with you, how would they contact you and where's your office located? So my office is located right across the street, <laughs> but um, the physical address um, Oh my goodness, it slipped my mind. 1045. 1045. <laughs> 10th High Street. Um, and it's Suite 200B. And then um, the phone number 281 486 
7,900. There you go. All right. And then our website is uh, txgulfcoastmed.com. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll be back in just a minute. So if you're watching on Facebook or listening to us on the radio, we'll be back in just a minute to talk to Amy. And if you're interested in seeing what she's got, click on over to Facebook because we have some things to show you. So we'll be right back in just a minute. Today, we're talking to Dr. Sarah Siddiqui. I almost said Sarah again. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And uh, now we're going to talk to Amy Eason. Amy is the director of our cardiac cath lab in the hospital. And ha- please don't tell everybody else in the hospital, but the cath lab They're is one of my safe. favorite places in the hospital. Seriously, it's it's so laid. Most of the, I mean, it's laid back, you right? You need to come hang out more. I know, I know. It's like they're listening to Journey and you're like, they're doing they're doing they're in someone's heart right now and they're just like all cool i mean everything is just laid back and putting on the lead suit is very cool too i have to say well we'll get you some and you can try it on (laughs) i know it is for exercise we like to put it on and walk up and down the stairs (laughs) i love it well you keep it so cold in there too you kind of have to have some lead on there that's so funny okay so um talk to me about so for those of you those people who aren't in the hospital all the time what happens in the cath lab Well, in the cardiac cath lab, we can work on someone's heart, obviously, because the cardiac. Um, In the heart, we would work on anyone who has any kind of blockage. So it could be pre-heart attack, meaning you've just been having chest pain or shortness of breath, and you went and saw a cardiologist, and you didn't study hard enough for your stress test. You failed. So then they bring you to the cath lab. (laughs) Technically, you can't study for a stress test, but we'll get into that. Yeah, yeah. I love that, though. They didn't take the cliff notes, so they failed. That's so funny. And they end up with us, and the definitive test is to see. We'll inject contrast, um, and we use lots of tools. Like, here's the sheath. So we would put a sheath in your groin or in your arm, and through this sheath, we would put catheters and wires up into your heart, Um, and just go on the very outside of the cusp of the artery and um, inject contrast or dye and um, from there take pictures and it's all it's actually it's not like a video it's actually a series of x-rays that are super fast and it tricks the eye into thinking it's actually a video so it's about 15 frames per second of how fast the x-ray is taking a single shot and then it puts it all together so it looks like a smooth movie yeah i I just thought it was like just happening (laughs) yeah that is so cool so if you're so from an outsider point of view if there's are these massive screens like jumbotrons oh my gosh they're huge and you can move them all around in the cath Mm -hmm. lab and it's you can see where there's there's a a blockage like you can you can see the heart Mm -hmm. and where the where the blood is going and then there's one that's just not working it's so crazy yeah so Mm -hmm. as soon as we would identify that then we would probably take a picture of the other side just to make sure they didn't have multi-vessel disease because if they had multi-vessel disease they might be a candidate for surgery open heart surgery if not if it's something doable and we can fix it right there then usually we'll the doctor will go ahead and transition to the intervention portion of the procedure meaning then we would start putting in wires and balloons to open up the blockage eventually you would probably get a stent to help open up the um, blockage as well Um, the other things we can do if a person has arrhythmias in their heart (coughs) we can go in and map your heart um, by putting little catheters that have probes they have um, signals on the end of it, and we um, it's kind of complicated, but there's magnets that lay underneath the table, underneath their heart, cameras above, and we would basically map out your heart and the hot spots and the cold spots of where the rhythm is going and um, 
the bad foci or the bad arrhythmias are coming from. Oh, wow. Yeah. So is this the one where you can like change the color of the heart and you can yeah. like do a 3D yeah, and it can look like a weird animal or whatnot? Cool. Yeah. You can be so <laughs> like nerdy in the cab lab. So from those colors, we can determine where that rhythm is coming from. So if it's a fib or if it's a flutter or if it's a supraventricular tachycardia or whatever they find, they know exactly where they need to go focus with the catheter to burn that arrhythmia or uh, do the ablation part. So are they doing ablations at that same part whenever they're going in for this? They map first to find out where, and then yes. But it would be different than unblocking a blockage. So the cardiac cath would be a different procedure. You would be scheduled for a um, EP study or electrophysiology study in a different um, incidence. Okay, so I have um, something that I'm going to share with everybody listening and watching, and this is I, I stole this from a cardiologist at my last hospital, so <laughs> but this is like the coolest way to know the difference between a cardiologist and an electrophysiologist. Are you ready for this? <laughs> I'm ready. So the, cardi <laughs> so the cardiologist is the plumber for your heart. They yes. get all, all the blockages, mm -hmm. right. and the electrophysiologist is the electrician for your mm -hmm. heart. They yes. make sure that it pumps on time. And they call themselves that for sure. Oh, really? <laughs> In fact, the staff will identify themselves as that as well because you know you have to really like EP because it can be a little dry and long. No, okay, so EP, EP is electrician. Yeah. yeah. And the plumbers, they love the fast and the furious and unplugging because it's an instant gratification. You know, as soon as you see that the blockage is open, the rhythm changes, it's an instant gratification. It is. And it is so cool to see that happen yeah. live. So the plumbers, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. So besides the heart, um, we also can work on your legs. We can work on your aorta. Um, so meaning in your legs and your aorta, in your aorta, if you had an aneurysm that was mm -hmm. in your stomach portion, the abdominal portion, we could cover that with the stent graft as well, preventing you from having to have surgery awesome um in your legs if you had any blockages that could have come from diabetes right. um yeah. if you have any peripheral vascular disease we could get in there find where the blockage is and also open it up so and so you guys do pacemakers and things like that too right we do we do so if you um if your heart's not beating enough and it's too bradycardic then you would get a pacemaker put in your heart um, we can do that in the lab as well if your heart goes into funky rhythms like ventricular tachycardia, which could be life-threatening, you would get a defibrillator that could shock your heart back into a normal rhythm. And y'all so, do all of that up there. We do. Listen to the journey. Stuff. That's right. <laughs> or whatever, or whatever <laughs> the doctor Friday. decides that day. <laughs> that's right. We'll let the patient decide a lot of times. We'll say, hey, what do you like? And they, they get to be DJ too. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, yeah, that is awesome. Yeah. Wow. Help them relax. That's, that's very cool because they're, they're, they, so they're awake during they these are. procedures Most and they can talk yeah. some of them fall asleep i've been in one where there was a snore and that was kind of funny yes <laughs> but I, it's, it's just it interesting it's, to be a yeah. part of that too okay so what procedures are we doing that are new or that we were one of the first people to do in the houston bay area the clear lake area in our area, we were the first facility, actually the second outside of the medical center um, and the first in this area to do the Watchman procedure. And what that is, is the left atrial appendage occlusion procedure. Um, Say that five times fast. I know. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> 
It is a new, uh, newly developed procedure that just got approved by the FDA and um, CMS for people who have long-term AFib that hasn't been able to be reversed from ablation and they're not tolerating being on blood thinners long-term. Say they have a high-risk job or they like to travel and go skiing or whatever it is, it's not conducive to their lifestyle to be on blood thinners for Mm -hmm. long-term. Or they could have GI bleeds. You know, there's a lot of things that a person can't be on blood thinners long-term. So if they have that combination, they could be a candidate for Watchmen. Basically what Watchmen is, is it's a tiny plug Ooh, yay, a show and tell time. So everybody on Facebook, y'all pay attention right now. (laughs) It's a tiny plug that kind of looks like a little squid or jellyfish. And what we do is we place it into your heart via these catheters. Oh, there you go. Via the catheters. So it's only a small hole that we poke in your groin. We go in through your vein. We will go up to your heart into the right atrium. And then we poke a small hole across the heart, the septum. From right atrium to left atrium and then we get in and we take pictures to make sure it's you know sized appropriately we take lots of pictures make sure it's all sized appropriately and then eventually they go in with the plug itself and then it opens up and what it will do is plug up that left atrial appendage which is kind of like the appendix for your heart it's not a part that you really need they found through study that when your heart is in a fib the random clots that can form would form in that appendage so they found that if they block off that appendage, then um, a person can prevent having clots form in their heart. Hence, then they don't have to be on blood thinners. And that would prevent them from having um, what? Prevent stroke? them from having stroke or heart attacks or pulmonary embolism. There's a numerous amount of things that, you know, clots are bad for your body. It's not good to have clots just lying around because they can cause havoc. Yes, exactly. And I have to say that I've never seen one of those in person. So that is so cool (laughs) to see this in person. So, um, hey, Jackie, give you a shout out uh, that's watching. Thanks for watching, Jackie. Okay, so let's talk. Oh, my gosh, I have so many questions to talk about. Since we're talking about AFib, let's let's go into a little bit of AFib. What causes what is so AFib is really atrial fibrillation. So what is that? Good job. So atrial fibrillation, you have basically a top and a bottom to your heart. The top is the atrium. You have a right and a left side, and then the bottom is the ventricle. Atrial fibrillation is just exactly what it sounds like. The top part of your heart is fibrillating. It's not beating at a normal rate. Normally, you would have one pulse from your right atrium that would go down to your ventricles, and you would have one pump from your ventricles. So it would be kind of that bump, bump sound that you Mm -hmm. hear. Anyways, I like it. When the bump bump isn't there, then the AFib is it's bump. So it's just fibrillating in the top of your heart. And so it's because it's not that normal rhythm, clots can form because blood is just sitting up there in the top part of your heart, not moving correctly through your heart in a normal fashion. So what what are signs and symptoms that someone would have if they had AFib? So you can help me, but I'm sure it's going to be, they're going to feel lightheaded. They could feel shortness of breath. They're going to feel their heart racing, Mm -hmm. probably. Um, They could have syncopal episodes where they're passing out and not realizing they're passing out. Blackout episodes. Yeah. Wow. That's kind of scary. So Mm -hmm. if you're blacking out, you might have atrial fibrillation. So go check that out. You could have some sort of arrhythmia. Yes. (coughs) So there's other arrhythmias out there besides AFib. What are those? Um, It could be an A flutter, which is more of a regular. um, So the the atrial 
uh, part of your heart is still not beating one beat to the one beat of the ventricle. It's more of like three beats and then one beat, three beat and then one beat. Uh-huh. The AFib is more just random. It's just kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have arrhythmias that focus more on the ventricle side, so ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation. You can have um, winky box, you know, WPW. Um, SVT. There's a lot of different rhythms and that saying, cause your heart to go super <laughs> fast or super slow. Oh, all right. So we are actually going to have to go to break, and we'll be back in just a minute to finish talking to Amy about all sorts of atrial fibrillation. I mean, I've got so many questions here. We won't get to all of them, but if anybody else has questions out there, oh, I see some other questions. We'll get back to Bethany in just a second. Uh, we're going to go to break. Y'all hang on. We'll be right back. Okay, so welcome back to Bay Area Regional Medical Hour. We're talking to Amy Easton. She's the director of our cardiac cath lab. We're talking about atrial fibrillation. We're talking about watchmen. We're talking about heart procedures and how cool the cath lab is with all of their amazing equipment that they have. And if you're interested in learning a little bit more about prediabetes and the importance of annual physical, go back and listen to the first part of this with Dr. Sara Siddiqui. Um, should be happy that 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 was a cool part too. Okay, so Amy, oh Bethany is talking about Amy's sound effects. <laughs> Those were very cool. Okay, thanks Bethany. As a Absolutely. reminder, <laughs> AFib is da 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 boom. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so let's let's continue talking about AFib for a little bit. What are the risk factors for developing atrial fibrillation? So I've seen patients develop it after a major heart surgery. Um, they or a major heart attack. Anything that can cause scar tissue in the heart could cause um, AFib to develop. And basically you're lying in the hospital bed trying to recover from either your heart attack or your surgery, and your heart just decides there's too much scar tissue, I'm gonna go into a funky rhythm. It's not really preventable, unfortunately. Um, There are two different types of AFib. There is a valvular AFib and a non-valvular AFib. If you have valvular AFib, it's due to more of a mechanical issue, meaning it's coming from one of your valves in your heart meaning there's a tightness or it's too floppy the blood's not going through correctly Hmm. Um, the non-valvular is the more common kind um, and that's the kind that we can fix with watchman as well so the Uh, non so does afib is it now dr siddiqui you might Mm -hmm. chime in on this one is it something that if your family has it or someone from your family has it you might be able to get it too um, I don't know if they've proven that it's a Not genetic. necessarily. Yeah, I don't think yeah. it's got hereditary traits mm-hmm. with it. Not, yeah. Not okay. that it's been proven yet. But people can get it outside of having some sort of heart surgery, too, it's, right? It can Absolutely. be idiopathic yes. in nature in terms of it can happen it just, just happen out of nowhere. Randomly, and exactly. there's not really a, a way to prevent it. Correct. Mm-hmm. Oh, Unfortunately. Okay. But if your heart is going da 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 If you feel anything weird, like major beats or something that takes your breath away, you should contact a doctor immediately. Okay. So what, what, okay, so this is something that a lot of people probably ask, but they feel like, Uh, I'm not really going to ask that, so I'm asking it today, okay? Okay. What's the difference between a heart attack and heart failure? So when you're having a heart attack, that means you have an active blockage or a developing blockage within your heart. Um, The normal heart attack that you're hearing about or the STEMI or the the emergency heart attack is when there's a total blockage of the heart. Um, One of the arteries that feeds the heart, because the heart's a muscle, so it requires blood and oxygen, just like any of your muscles when you're working out. Well, when that blood flow is stopped, all of a sudden, then the heart 
says, hey, what the heck is happening? And it starts hurting and it's causing you massive pain. The pain is different for everybody. It's not the typical, you know, oh my gosh, crushing pain in my chest. It could be in your arm. It could be in your jaw. It could be abdominal pain. It could be back pain. So and it's ha- different for women too. It's and, completely and for, different. for those with diabetes as well, it's yes. different. Oh, really? So yeah. what is it with diabetes? It can actually, they can, it can be silent symptoms or it can be where it's very yeah. nonspecific, not the classic chest pain radiating to the left arm. Definitely wow. a lot of silence with the diabetes. And I wonder if it has to do with their nerve endings. Like, are they mm-hmm. more muted? Yeah. So that's Possibly. why they don't feel the problems in their yeah. legs as well. So Okay. All right. The diff- okay. You, so you just said heart attack. heart attack. Okay. Heart, heart failure. Failure is, um, <clears throat> there's different types of heart failure. One of them develops after you've had the heart attack and you've caused that scar tissue or the muscle damage. So once you've had the heart attack and you didn't get help right away, the muscle dies. So a part of your heart and your heart muscle is not functioning like it should be. And your squeeze is not as good as it used to be. We mm-hmm. call it ejection fraction. Once it gets too low, then you can be, you develop heart failure, meaning your heart's not able to pump like it should. Mm. Yeah. So what do people do for heart failure? Well, we can put in pacemakers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which can reserve, re- reverse the signs and symptoms and actually reverse heart failure. I've seen it... Um, where a person doesn't necessarily need the pacemaker after a certain amount of years. It can reverse the effects of it. Yeah. Oh, so it's like a bone and it can regenerate a little bit. Kind of. Kind I don't of. know if you want to speak to that, but they, they're developing technologies and working on uh, genetic therapy, actually, to inject you know, um, new um, genetic material to into your heart to help develop muscle back again to bring it back to life oh that's awesome i don't think any of those are you know on the market yet obviously but they're working on them but the pacemaker definitely can help with reverse the signs of heart failure and help you breathe better and it help your ejection fraction oh so when you have heart failure you it's hard to breathe absolutely what are the other signs and symptoms of it fatigue difficult breathing um extra bloating um, because basically the heart is the engine of your body mm-hmm. so if the blood's not able to pump effectively then everything can back up into the other you know extremities organs lungs wherever oh. do you want right exactly so it can have lower extremity swelling right um also can can cause Ooh. like you're saying bloating yeah. Um, yeah definitely difficulty breathing okay that's right. one of the big right. things yeah absolutely <clears throat> Okay, so so we were talking about the cath lab and how it's completely different from having surgery. You want to explain what you were what you were talking about earlier? Yeah, I think patients and family members alike both have this idea that oh, I'm going to the cath lab, I must be having surgery. Um, it's not that we don't have those sharper tools, I guess I should say. <laughs> we don't like to saw into anyone's chest or anything like that. We actually go through very, very small holes. So it would be just like starting an IV, and it would be an IV either in your leg or your arm. Sometimes they'll even start them in your neck, um, and it'll go in an artery. Um, depending on what we're looking at, we could also go in your vein, but usually it's your artery. And um, yeah, through the very small, small catheters, um, we can take all the pictures and fix everything basically you know the balloons or the stents um 
and the recovery has improved tremendously back in the day it used to be giant sandbags and a giant man holding pressure down on your artery for hours at a time um, now we have closure devices so we have these small devices that we can put in through the sheaths and take the sheaths out and close it with tiny collagen plugs or a tiny suture inside to where your bed rest time is reduced to two hours. Oh, wow, that's awesome. And no one holding pressure or sandbags or anything like that. <coughs> so um, if someone comes in for like just a cardiac cath and it's not gonna be intervention, they'll go home the same day? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, awesome. Yeah, um, a lot of our patients will go home the same day. So if someone came in through the ER with a heart attack, are they going home the same day? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> <I had laughs> if they ask. came in with a heart attack, they've probably got some other stuff going on, so the doctor will want to watch them closer and evaluate them for a few days afterwards. Okay, all right. So let's talk about anything else you want to say about the cath lab? And we not are a surgery. fun place at the hospital, <laughs> but I would like to say, even though with our fun and hip hop Fridays, we do when when it's time to get serious, we do. We can flip that switch, and they're very professional and do a great job. I'm yes. proud of my team. And even, I mean, I hear from the cardiologists all the time of how uh, they really love the team that you have up there, and yeah. they trust them, and it's just a great team. It is. It's lots a good of, atmosphere. Lots yes. of lots of experience and yes. just huge knowledge base tons of knowledge and experience in that cath lab. Um, I mean, many, many people with over 10 years experience in the cath lab, which is pretty unheard of in most cath labs. A lot of times you'll have travelers or, you know, people who are brand new, fresh out of school. Yeah. We're very fortunate. That's awesome. Keep up the good work, Amy. Thank and you. Awesome job, team. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about heart valve disease. What does that mean? What are the signs and symptoms? What is it? So depending on what valve is effective, um, the most common one I would say is mitral valve disease as far as women will have a mitral valve um, regurge or prolapse um, and they might hear it with a murmur. The doctor would um, use a stethoscope and you'll be getting your physical and you might hear something. You could also be born with that and um, it's more pronounced usually when you're ill. Um, what we see more of in the cath lab, in our cath lab in this area, is the aortic valve disease. Um, a lot of calcium, instead of going straight to the coronary arteries, can lie on the outside of the valve, causing calcium blockage, basically. And the aortic valve is the major, major valve that connects to the aorta, which is feeding the whole rest of your body. Mm -hmm. So if you think of a garden hose and you put a whole lot of rocks over the garden hose and there's barely a stream for the blood to get through you can imagine what that does to the rest of your body yeah and that's what it does um, the other side of that is you could also have um, where the aortic valves are not um, the leaflets are more flail so it's not necessarily calcium where it's blocking but now the blood just kind of goes in and out on its own and there's no nothing regulating the flow mm -hmm. that can also be bad as well Oh, wow. So yeah. do y'all y'all treat that in the cath lab as well? So not in our cath lab at this time. We don't. Um, there is a procedure that is done um, in the Texas Medical Center where they can fix that in the cath lab, but we do fix valves um, in the OR at Bay Area Regional. So once we've diagnosed you with that, we can refer them to the CB surgeons and they can replace it um, surgically. Awesome. That is fascinating. I did not know about, but it makes sense with the garden hose and the rocks right. and all yeah, of that. That's a great analogy. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. So uh, let's talk about what, going back to our AFib question real quick. Why would someone need to be on a blood thinner? 
um, because the way the AFib was the da 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 da, da bump, <laughs> and the blood is just kind of sitting there pooling in the top of your heart, and it's not doing anything. Well, when blood pools, it can cause clots to right. form. That's bad. We don't want clots in our body anywhere, including, you know, a step, especially in our heart, because mm-hmm. once it gets into the ventricle, then it can get jetted, propelled out, and it can go to your brain for sure. Yeah. Um, so to prevent the clots from forming at all, we want the patient to be on blood thinners, which okay. will thin the blood and cause it to not want to clot or coagulate together. Oh, cool. Okay, so tell me a little bit about you, Amy. Why did you want to become a nurse and be in the cath lab? Oh, wow, pressure. Um, (laughs) Well, it wasn't initially cath lab that I started in. Um, I just wanted to work in the hospital. I started working in the hospital when um, I was in high school, actually. Oh, awesome. In my hometown. Um, And I thought I was going to be an ER nurse, or ER physician, actually. I I thought, oh, I'm going to be pre-med. I'm going to do all the... Anyhow, I got to college, um, and I decided, you know what? That's a lot of school. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I'm ready to start life. Yeah. (laughs) And so um, I I realized that nursing, there's a lot of options, and it's a lot easier, and you can travel, and you can – you basically – change what department you you know what you're working with it could go from the babies to the cath lab to the or mm-hmm. fairly quickly um, without additional schooling so i found out that nursing was for me awesome well cool well thank you both for being on the show today such interesting information and please don't tell everybody that i said that cath lab <laughs> is one of my favorite parts of the hospital um if you- <laughs> <laughs> okay good so you guys tune in next tuesday at four o'clock we'll be back we'll actually have our first mom who delivered twins at our hospital come wow. and talk about her experience yeah cool that i'm so excited exciting. and it was wow. two boys oh wow so that- she bring in the babies too i don't know i'm gonna leave that up to her her <laughs> so um, we'll have her the physician with her as well and we'll have uh, one of our uh, bariatric patients talk about her story about how she's lost weight too so you guys tune it's in next week at four o'clock we'll have lots of great stories and we'll see you next time thanks so much for listening and watching